Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, August 6th, 2021, the 94th birthday of my dad, Dr. Martin Gatos. I sure miss you, Dad. And we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, August the 9th. 2021 from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 68th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show is part three of a series on Cuba-U.S. relations and addresses the context, history of Cuban-U.S. relations in order to better interpret the unfolding events that are being presented and largely misrepresented by our media and by our President Joe Biden and his administration. We began our coverage of the Cuban protests and connected histories three weeks ago with the esteemed historian and author Jane Franklin. Last week, we had T.J. Masters, a millennial generation perspective who lived in Florida for many years growing up. And this week, we have another important U.S. citizen profile of the developing issues in Cuba and its history, and that would be Greg Ciotti from yet another generation. So enjoy. Okay, good afternoon, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. Today is August 6th, 2021, and this is the anniversary of my dad's birth. Happy birthday, Dad, wherever you are. Really an important day for me. This show will actually be rebroadcast on Monday, August the 9th, 2021. With that being said, I wanted to share that we have done a couple of shows. This is the third of a trilogy of shows on Cuba and the issues going on on the island that have been reported broadly by our mainstream media. I have as my guest... Greg Ciotti, Undercover Greg, is involved with InTouch interviews and has been a longtime member of the co-op cooperative. I really appreciate all of his dedicated work. So, Greg, let me welcome you to Bringing Light into Darkness. Oh, thank you very much, Pedro. I'm uh, flattered and uh, probably uh, unworthy of the invitation, but uh, I listened to your show. Uh, I helped you engineer on your show and have learned from every show that I've listened to and participated in. So uh, thank you for the effort, the decades-long effort that you've put into this show and, and to the truth. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Greg. I appreciate that coming, especially coming from you. 
The issues in Cuba, it's hard to create a format that's conducive to our listening audience. And so over the last couple of shows, I've chosen a couple of people that I respect so much for their independent thinking and and sharpness, namely TJ last week and this week Greg, to kind of walk us through some of the concerns and the impressions and the images that are being created that shape the American public's perception, which I've found in my own visits to the island on a number of occasions and studying its history to be quite a bit off the mark. But anyhow, with that being said, I'm going to turn it over to you, Greg. Well, just as a way of introduction, uh, I have studied at the graduate level of foreign policy, uh, but not Cuba. But what I have done is experienced by living through Cuba's history from Batista through to today. And one of the things that I would like to also start with is just re-summarize what, what I heard when uh, listening to your previous two shows, and that is that the people supported Castro, and this was exactly what the U.S. has targeted. And in a not-surprising move, uh, facts were made to fit the case, and the case was trying to overthrow the government. And this is the impression that I have felt, you know, regardless of study. What also we, we heard is that, as with every embargo or sanction that is imposed unilaterally by the U.S., the people are hurt, not the governments. And what I saw as a young man growing up in uh, America was uh, the executions on TV, that is, the brutalism of the revolution. And to this day, I won't forget hats flying off when the people were executed. Uh, this was shown on TV, on the nightly news. There was also uh, Castro's visit to the U.N., where he was uh, interviewed in the Waldorf Astoria, and it was an entourage, uh, children, animals, and there were stories of him you know, actually cooking over open fires there. Uh, I remember the U.N. speech, and uh, to this day, I can't remember whether he wore his sidearm or not. I know Arafat did, but I can't remember that specifically. I know he wore it in the interview at the Waldorf Astoria. Um, I realized that what we were being shown repeatedly was propaganda from the start and seemed to me to be targeting Castro as an individual, that uh, the actions we took against Cuba did not seem to have a strong basis in foreign policy and could be part of what then was the formation of the domino theory. Uh, we didn't want a domino in the Caribbean, for instance, 90 miles from our shore. Another thing I recall, which just is off the wall here, but we used to grow a lot of corn that we couldn't give away, and we did give it away every year to Cuba. We shipped boatloads of corn to uh, Cuba, and uh, it's something I always remembered and always wondered about, why we would do that. Again, an impression that I grew by knowing and working with Cuban-Americans is that our policy seemed to be dictated by a small group of specially treated emigres to Miami, and this seemed to skew the perspective uh, of what was going on. And Everyone I met was very fixed in their ways and unyielding. Uh, I recall, uh, also recall the Mariel Bo people, their response to that when we opened our, uh, opened our immigration. I remember Angola when it was happening and how I felt it was so hypocritical that the U.S. would seemingly support apartheid South Africa and then complain about how Cuba was doing what we have done for the last 150 years, which is sent our military in to do our policy for us starting in the Caribbean and Central America. Throughout my college uh, time, we protested for divestment of U.S. businesses, and particularly universities who invested in those uh, in South Africa. Okay, so my first question to you uh, 
is what are the real parallels between South Africa and Cuban policies, because they all seem to be contrary or just the opposite. And yet we paraded Mandela around as a hero that we produced when he was freed from prison. The first show that we did featured Nelson Mandela very largely, and he made it very clear that there was a huge difference between Cuba coming to Africa and the United States, more imperial efforts along with other Western nations in world history. When Cuba left Angola, it did not bring back resources. It did not bring back anything but its, but its own international missions and soldiers. They lost over 2,000 people in that effort. That's the principle of internationalism was to respond to the request from the Angolan MPLA that was fighting back the South African army. And so, as Mandela spoke very clearly without mincing words, Cuba was a decisive factor in the overthrow of apartheid South Africa. It was the first military defeat ever of the South African apartheid army in Angola in 1988. It was a decisive battle at Quito Quanavale. That's an important history. You mentioned a number of things. I tried to jot down a couple of them. I think the domino effect, this is what we're indoctrinated to believe, that somehow the domino effect is bad. But if the, if the effect of changing government results in the marked improvement of the majority population of that country, that would be a good thing. We'd want a domino effect to go throughout the whole world because the majority populations are the ones that suffer, just as you said very clearly that sanctions seem to hurt the public more than they do any government, which is a true statement, of course. And so that's a real important deal. On this show, we've looked at Bolivia under Evo Morales, who was president from 2006 to 2019, 13 years. Clearly, we showed, and we're not going to go back over because it's on previous shows, and we can get that to you, but the vast improvement on the welfare of the majority population, quality of life issues and reductions in poverty, etc. The same thing occurred in Ecuador with Rafael Correa, 2007-2017. The same thing occurred under Hugo Chavez as he started taking, he elected off our power in 1998 and through to the end of his life. The same thing happened with Manuel Zelaya, who was a cooed out, after a very short period of time, uh, it was basically he was from January of 2006 to the coup date was actually June 28th, just three years later, 2009. But during that period of time, the Center for Economic Policy Research, Mark Weisbrot, the Ph.D. economist and their team, again, showed how the vast majority of people, their quality of life is almost like night and day, you know, uh, lunches and food for kids in school, and the poverty rates were slashed, the extreme poverty rates were slashed. The reason I bring this up, Greg, is because the same thing happened with John Bertrand Aristide under you know, the two coups in, 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 in Haiti, sure. in Haiti and the Lavalas party, addressing all of these horrific long-term poverty things. And then, of course, in Libya in 2011, the, the country with the highest human development index in all of Africa was the country that we convinced the American public, or at least tried to, by Samantha Powers and Obama and Hillary Clinton, that it was this country where people lived better than any other place in Africa, that it was Libya that needed a humanitarian intervention, and turned that into a, a hotbed of jihadists now and, and one of the worst living conditions in the world. And then, of course, finally, Iraq, 
we can go on and on and on. But I guess the point I'm trying to get to is when you juxtapose Cuba and the domino effect, the advances that Cuba had made and has made, not just in their own country, but through their exporting of doctors and those types of things to helping out other countries, has all been in the opposite direction of improving the living standard of the majority population that they're involved in. If you understand that objective, provable premise, that whether it was the aforementioned countries of Ecuador, Bolivia, Venezuela, Haiti, Libya, or Iraq, not to mention Syria and the Ukraine, in every instance, the majority population is worse off when our foreign policy outcomes are successful, and conversely, the majority population's interests are demonstrably and substantially improved when our foreign policy desires are unsuccessfully met. The same can be said for Cuba. The only reason it is not so clear that the living conditions would be better in the absence of U.S. foreign policy is because of the asphyxiating blockade that we have put on Cuba since the early 1960s. The same blockade has been voted in the U.N. for the last 29 years, with over 95% of the U.N. General Assembly nations annually voting since 1992 to end the economic, commercial, and financial embargo imposed by the United States against Cuba. Just this past June, the UN vote was 184 to 2, only the United States and Israel supporting the embargo. Yet, in a stunning example of arrogance, we call our embargo part of our policy of bringing democracy to Cuba, whether they like it or not. It becomes very difficult to avoid the conclusion that just as we fought to get out from underneath the thumb of Great Britain and the king back in our own Independence Day, back in 1776, these countries are doing the same thing by demanding the world respect their own sovereign choices. Except now, today, the media, the imaging, all of the information is so controlled and limited and dominated in such a way that we are very easily misled into believing what's really untrue. You actually uh, started answering uh, the next question I had for you, and that was uh, listing some of the pluses of the Cuban government, the uh, uh, birth rates, the uh, medical, you know, the, the peace, uh, basically, that governed there in spite of the sanctions. But is there more than the single complaint that we've been told since the beginning that they are communist? What, what more was there that drove us to a lifetime of uh, seemingly childish sanctions against Cuba. Yeah, and I think, again, these words, communist, I mean, they just trigger such fear. A visceral knee-jerk reaction, exactly. In trepidation, and they've been instilled in our psyche and in our beings as part of a way to really avoid the real on-the-ground issues of, like, just what we said. You know, Ronald Reagan's, you know, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Well, I don't think people really care if they're starving to death, what you call a government, if all of a sudden they're no longer starving to death. There's a big misperception, too, that somehow Cuba was always communist, that when Fidel came to power, actually, he was a a market-oriented mindset, that, that he came to the United States, sought trade and peace with the United States. We slapped him and told him, you know, just like, unless you do what we say, 
we will not deal with you. And he said, well, basically, the sovereignty of our nation is that we'll decide what we're going to do and what we're not going to do, just like any other nation. And this is the, the epitome of the arrogance of big, powerful nations in the history of the world, that because of their power, they can arrogantly dictate what all other countries do. At the same time, they can call that bringing democracy to the country. So it's a real contradiction. And if you label it communist, it sells better. Well, sure it does. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to turn the, the, you know, turn the coin, basically, and uh-huh. look at what motivated Cuba's international actions. Certainly, they chose to press some of the very hot buttons against the U.S., you know, the medical, as much good as the med- medical uh, aid and the doctors in foreign countries and the teaching of doctors in Cuba did, it, it was still, uh, you know, it, it seemed like a, a stick in the face of the United States. And a lot of these aid that Castro and his regime uh, offered to other countries came at the cost of the Cubans. However, were their conditions better throughout? Uh, did they have other reasons? for doing this, or was there political motivation behind this medical aid and other aid that they offered other countries, and was it at the cost of the people, and were they better off in spite of it? Well, first, they did it under the aegis of the most asphyxiating embargo and blockade that's ever occurred in the history of the world. So, of course, any resources that that leave the country are going to create more hardships for the people, but in a revolutionary society, which we, we have trouble grasping because we think differently, we've been brought up differently, many, many Cubans were behind that. Certainly there were people that might be critical of it. I think the question, it distracts from what they have done to ameliorate suffering throughout the world. And, you know, we've already covered some of this ground, but some over 160 nations have been touched significantly by Cuban medical aid. From 1966 to 2017, over 33,000 doctors, non-Cubans, from 134 countries had been trained in Cuba. Operation Milagro had provided almost 3 million people from over 30 countries eye operations. So this medical international program, it's not about the United States. It's about Cuba. It's about revolutionary Cuba. It's not about sticking a stick in the eye of the United States. It's restoring sight to millions of people, among other medical interventions. It's about the revolutionary principle of internationalism, which is woven into the Constitution of Cuba. In Cuba and at universities that Cuba helped create in Africa and elsewhere, the embarrassment is to the United States. We go into countries, and every country we started the show off with, we act on behalf of investment capital. And unfortunately, they make more money if they can pay people less. So they get naturally attracted to more authoritarian governments that are willing to sacrifice the best interests of their own majority population to stay in office and befriend the West and the United States and such. So Fidel once said, if the U.S. is so concerned about medical aid and program and of internationalism that we are promoting and exporting ever since the first one, I think, was in Algiers in 1960 or 61, then why don't 
they do it. (laughs) You know, the largest, most powerful country in the world. And so instead, it just doesn't make sense to me that we would focus on what were their motives? What, What type of pernicious motive could there be? Actually, under Pompeo and under Trump, they tried to delegitimize, they slandered this program. They made up stories. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And th- this is why I say they, they, we threw a blanket of communism over anything good that was done. And we, the, the general public, are, are left to wonder, again, why. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also leads to the, the, the question that I wanted to get to earlier in the show, but uh, we, we, we've gotten to it right now. And that is, what is really mitigating the current protests in Cuba? What's behind that? Well, what's behind that is a number of things, okay? Number one, there are very trying economic conditions in Cuba. I mean, it's it's a very tough place to live based on the economy. And uh, secondly, there's been an uptick in COVID as well that some people have expressed some concern about. Um, But again, if you don't look at this in the context of the embargo and those types of attacks that the United States has done upon Cuba that have drained many of their resources in order to protect their revolution, their sovereignty, then you completely miss the the boat. And this is what the U.S. coverage in the media do. They'll talk about the economic conditions. They'll talk about the COVID question. By the way, even with the COVID response and the uptick they, they have, you look it up for yourself, how many per million people have been affected, and you'll see that Cuba has one of the lowest death rates in the whole hemisphere. Like, I think it's in the top three, you know, way, way better than the United States. And, and their circumstances are, are much worse off now than they were once they were uh, ripped by the Soviet Union. Nobody really supporting them. Not only that, but one of the things that the embargo is particularly perniciously restricting is access to medicines, access to syringes, access to technology. Can you imagine that, that you have a country 90 miles away and you are trying to exasperate the COVID situation in that country? That is a the most unethical war crime type of thing. And all our public is focused on based on the way we cover stuff and provide information to the public is why is there a thousand or 2000 people protesting? And to get to your question, there's been a whole evolution on trying to promote dissent in Cuba in civil society. And we'll go over that if we I'm hoping we'll have some time. But I wanted to take a step back and let the listenership know the history of this attack on Cuba. It's not just an embargo. These are attacks in many, many fronts. And one of them, of course, is the history of terrorism that started right after the Cuban Revolution, basically in 1960 or late 1959. And so with your permission, then let me just play this clip. You can listen to it, and then we can go from there and build on other types of ways in which Cuba has been affected by U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Absolutely. This is largely sourced from Jane Franklin's work, and we actually broadcast this back on January 4th, 2021. It's about six minutes. State Department is considering putting Cuba on the list of terrorist nations. However, to show you who the real terrorists are. We turn to some documented but generally unspoken history of U.S. relations with Cuba post-1959. 
in the terrorist nature of that policy. The information comes predominantly from Jane Franklin's chronology of U.S.-Cuba relations. With respect to terrorism history, those that are familiar with Cuban and U.S. relations know that the Cuban revolutionary forces led by Fidel Castro and, and others came to power on January 1st of 1959. And almost immediately that same year, all sorts of terrible activities started and have continued to emanate from U.S. soil starting in 1959. At the end of the year, there was the U.S. military airplanes would, would, would camouflage themselves as counter-revolutionary Cuban aircraft. This is in 1231, 1959, the first year anniversary or whatever. And they dropped napalm bombs on oil refineries and sugarcane fields of Cuba. This is repeated behavior, incendiary devices being dropped throughout the island to destroy the agricultural uh, entities and stuff that we'll talk about in just a second. On January 12th, of 1960, napalm bombs are dropped from covert U.S. aircraft and burn 10 tons of sugarcane in, in the Havana province. Uh, I'm just highlighting a few of these. On February 18th, in fact, the U.S. pilot Robert Ellis Frost is killed when his aircraft is shot down while attacking a sugar mill in Matanzas province. It just proved outright that these were U.S. pilots and, and other things, although that was already well known. An increasingly covert and overt campaign of industrial sabotage was being waged in March of 1960. On March 1st, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, now he owned land that had been confiscated as part of the agrarian reform law, and he refused all attempts to negotiation. And in March, a $100 million loan in 1960 granted Cuba by Western European banks is canceled in response to U.S. threats. Famous or the infamous March 4th bombing of the French freighter, the Cubra, loaded with Belgium arms and ammunition. Uh, this is in, in order for Cuba to defend itself against all of these aggressions. It's blown up in Havana, killing over 100 workers. I think also it's important to highlight that uh, subsequent to these kind of military incursions by planes and other and bombings, they evolved into biological attacks. Uh, 1968, a foreign specialist working for an international agency is expelled after he's confirmed to have introduced a virus affecting coffee crops in Cuba. 1971, the African swine fever is introduced. The Cubans claim that the uh, container transporting the virus came from Fort Gulick, a U.S. military base in the Panama Canal Zone that's later to be confirmed in testimony by Eduardo Aracena. Those involved have since testified to their part of it. The entire pig population of Cuba had to be slaughtered in 1971. Following the swine attacks in 1979, 10 years later, 1979-1980, two different strains of African swine fever are discovered emanating from distinct areas of contamination. 300,000 pigs are slaughtered. Sugarcane, 1977, a cane smut is detected in eastern Cuba, Never known before this disease in this, in this part of the world. Uh, 1978, a previously unknown variety of blue mold hits the sugar crops, causing losses of approximately 344 million pesos. Sugarcane rust, another disease. 1978, a new variety of cane that they imported, Cuba did from Barbados, is contaminated with this new type of a disease, the sugarcane rust, and as a result, over a million, uh, 1.3 million tons of sugar are, are, are lost. Also bovine, young cows and young bulls were introduced to viruses that took many of them. We need to briefly interrupt this history of terrorism emanating from the United States towards Cuba for some important announcements. We'll be back right after this. 
This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin.